Why do you think DC is so, to use your term, unprofessional? Why do you think there's this massive lack of seriousness? Because there are so very few members, staff, bureaucrats serving the executive branch that have any experience in, which means little knowledge of, and maybe even more importantly, very little sympathy for the private sector. They, they look at, they look at the, the easy money made by these big tech billionaires. Well, you know, business is easy. <laughs> you know, business is our cash cow. Yeah. I mean, biz- business is, is, you know, these are the entities that price gouge. And so, you know, we've, we're, we're the angels here. We're, we're the really smart people to make sure that these evil business people don't price gouge our voters. Uh, we're we're going to be the ones that com- command these economies. And they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. I think the other thing is uh, because they've never been in the private sector, they've never even been part of a functioning organization. Now, I think the, the bureaucrats, you've got the agencies that they're probably, you know, they're functioning organizations, okay? But Congress, I mean, I, I, I've never seen anything this dysfunctional. Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we are here for the season finale of season three of Moment of Truth. Thank you guys for listening to us all season. We had a very exciting guest on today, but before I get to that, be sure as always to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find everything that we have cooking, new programs, old programs, the backlog of this show, all the news articles being written about us, and so much more. Um, I think we're basically done on our Spring Fellowship for American Statecraft, but guess what? We have summer up now too. Um, so go ahead, start applying for that, fill out the interest form, fill out the application. Let's uh, start getting applications in for that. We want to bring you to Washington. If you want to uh, come a different way, just get a job here. Go to AmericanMoment.org slash join. Uh, today, we had on uh, a very exciting guest. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson came to Washington in 2010 after a successful 30-plus year career in manufacturing because he believed the federal government was bankrupting America. Um, and he has now served uh, in many, many different roles uh, as a senator and uh, most recently as the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee from 2015 to 2021, and now uh, is the ranking member on the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. He also serves on the Budget and Finance Committees. He was elected to his third term in November of 2022, which, you know, is kind of interesting. You know, Republicans have pretensions to win national elections. Um, it seems to me that a lot of our math runs through the upper Midwest, and there is one statewide elected Republican left in the upper Midwest. So I think we should listen to him. Unfortunately, a lot of people in Washington don't tend to do so. Um, I just thought it was a fantastic episode. We talked about um, you know, his, his approach on, on debt and deficits, what he thinks the crises facing the country are, how full of rage the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically on vaccines, made him, um, and uh, what he thinks we should be doing about Ukraine. I thought it was a fantastic episode. What do you think, Nick? It was the, the, the moment that really got my goat was when we were... <laughs> 
<laughs> talking about vaccines killing people, and then we started talking about all the conspiracies around the JFK assassination. <laughs> You're definitely going to want to hang through yeah. uh, until that, probably around the 40-minute mark or so. Uh, uh, fantastic episode, covered a wide variety of topics. It was very... Um, he kept apologizing for being scattershot, but that, it's like, no, I thought it was awesome. awesome. That's great. Yeah, it was great. Politicians are so boring most of the time. We had a, we had a blast. Thank you, Senator Johnson, for coming on the show. Thank you to the staff for making it happen. Uh, so we'll go now to Senator Ron Johnson. Senator Johnson, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We always like to hear about how our guests are, um, the path that they took to getting to where they are today. Uh, you have an unusual one for a U.S. senator, uh, one that gives you a different perspective on this town. Tell us that story. Why Why on earth would you have subjected yourself to elected office? Well, I'm an accountant by education, ran a manufacturing plant for 30-some years, and it was really part of the Tea Party movement. Uh, I'd never given a speech in public, obviously taught to my employees, uh, but I was asked to give a speech to the Tea Party in October 2009. And they wanted me to talk about you know, the harmful impact of government regulation on business, which I could have spent hours talking about, but it's not what I want to talk about. And they said, well, come talk anyway. We, we need speakers. And so on the, the steps of the Oshkosh County Courthouse, where Ronald Reagan delivered part of his tax reform agenda, you know, I, I basically told the story of my daughter who was uh, born with the transposition of the great arteries. Uh, first day of life, she had a uh, one of these marvelous doctors that President Obama had said, well, take out a set of tonsils or amputate a foot to you know, make a few extra bucks. You know, Basically calling, calling doctors who dedicate their lives to saving other people's lives, a bunch of greedy, money-grubbing you-know-whats. And so I, I found that pretty offensive. So I told that story how, you know, we had a doctor come in at one thirty in the morning, did a procedure, saved her life, first day of life. Then eight months later, when her, when her heart was the size of a small plum, in uh, seven hours of open heart surgery, they rebaffled the upper chamber of her heart. So my daughter's heart operates backwards today. Wow. She's four years old, 40 years old, uh, has two children through surrogacy, and she's led a pretty perfectly normal life. So I, I told that story, uh, again, really pushing back on what, President Obama was was doing, uh, denigrating doctors to sell his Obamacare. And after I gave that speech in October, uh, people that I didn't even know came up to me, hey, you know, like your speech, why don't you run for office? Because I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but th then they passed Obamacare on Christmas Eve, 2009. Uh, you know, the Tea Party movement with, uh, you know, was was strong. Uh, I certainly was looking at, we, I think back then we were $14 trillion in debt, had run our first trillion dollar deficit. We're mortgaging and plunging our children's future. I think that's immoral. Still think it is. We're not coming to grips with that. And so I, I primarily ran on the basis of, you know, the, the platform of freedom and uh, the immorality of mortgaging our children's future and how Obamacare would not protect patients, would not produce affordable health care. And so I didn't decide to run until April of 2010, announced a few weeks later, uh, amazingly got the endorsement of the Republican Party convention, so I didn't really have a, a, a real challenging primary, so I could start running a, a five- to six-month campaign, Russ Feingold, and, and beat him. What? Tell me about the dynamics of that race. I mean, running against a Democrat incumbent, um, just the insane uphill battle that that can be, especially with the, how much more heavily resourced they are than the Republican Party. What, what was the dynamics? Well, he was going for either his third or fourth term. And you know, listen, the public just gets tired of elected officials, you know, no matter who they are, you know, quite honestly. And you know, you had a Tea Party wave. 
So I, I would, you know, I would say that Feingold and Democrats lost that election as opposed to, you know, it was just fabulous and I won it. <laughs> uh, 2016, I think I won the election. You know, um, but you do have to understand in the end, elections are about getting votes. Mm-hmm. And the way you get votes is you have to have strong grassroots efforts. Uh, you know, messaging is, messaging is important. I think ads less so. I think people just tuning those things out. So you have to have a very strong ground game. I think awful lot of uh, campaigns, uh, campaign consultants and candidates just simply don't understand the, the nuts and bolts and mechanics of actually winning a, a race. Yeah, and then what they'll say back to their candidates is, you don't understand, I need a second beach home. And the way I get that is by getting a couple cents on ad spend. Um, but one, th- one thing I do know is if you win, the consultants take all the credit. If you lose, just bad candidates. Yeah, I have bad yeah. ca- candidate so, quality. That's, that's exactly that's right. That's buzzword here. We were talking about uh, before the show about how a lot of these uh, uh, you know consultants haven't come to you to ask like, well, well, how did you, how did you do it? And you were mentioning, um, you know, having a good grassroots effort. I mean, what, what does it look like to, to win in the upper Midwest? What do you have to do? Uh, and, and why are other people not capable of doing it? What's your secret sauce? First of all, I think people need to believe you're genuine. You know, when I first ran in 2010, I only made two promises. I said, I'll always tell you the truth. I'll never vote, and by extension, conduct myself with my re-election mind. Now, that was interpreted as I was only going to run first term. That's not what, or one term. That's not what I said. So I'll tell you the truth, and I won't conduct myself worrying about re-election. Uh, so I think people really do believe, whether they agree with me or not, they, they believe that I believe what I'm saying, that I am genuine. That, that's the first important part. Uh, then secondly, in terms of the actual election mechanics, you got to, you got to work your tail off. I mean, you got to go all over the state and you need to be willing to talk to everybody, you know, as, as rotten as most of the Wisconsin press is in terms of being, you know, radical leftists themselves, not being fair, you know, gotcha questions all over the place. I've always myself made myself accessible. I, I take the questions, uh, and I, I, I try and do it without getting a bombastic, just you know, adhere to the principle of, you know, sharpen your argument rather than raise your voice. Mm. And that's not to say that I don't get passionate, that uh, I don't get pretty angry about things. But, you know, I think publicly you try and be pretty even keel. And I think that's important as well. But again, it's a, it's a strong gr- grassroots effort. Uh, we are very fortunate in Wisconsin to have a pretty strong Republican Party. Okay. Um, not everybody loves it totally. But uh, <laughs> and by the way, I, I still consider myself more Tea Party than Republican. Uh but we have a two-party system here. It's far from perfect, but it works better than just about any other type of political system in the world. And, you know, when, when you decide to run for a statewide office like this, you, you can't run as a third party. It's just not successful. You have, to, you have to join. You have to align yourself with one of the two. And obviously, I am way more closely aligned with Republican Party as opposed to the Democrats who are literally destroying this country. So that was a pretty easy choice. And in Wisconsin, I think the result of that because I am more Tea Party, and I'm recognized that way, and I joined the Republican Party, there, there's really a very cooperative relationship in Wisconsin between the Republican Party, we'll call it the establishment wing of the party. I think most people in the Republican Party of Wisconsin are a bunch of rabble-rousers like me, probably more aligned with Tea Party anyway. But Tea Party groups, you know, other groups like Americans for Prosperity, Turning Point, and again, we, we all recognize that we're on the same side, and you know, there aren't, there's not the, the purest movement. There is to a certain extent. You know, there are some groups in county parties and 
can be somewhat disruptive. But by and large, people adhere to the the concept that I'd, I'd rather align myself with somebody who agrees with me seventy or eighty percent of the time, as opposed to you know excommunicate those people and and just be my own little lonely group of of one because I agree with everything I believe in. That's fascinating. So the dynamics in the the upper Midwest are, are interesting because you, know, you you got elected first in that that Tea Party wave, and then during the year of your reelect to the Senate, uh, there was another sort of political revolution in that part of the country, which was 2016. President Trump gets elected to Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania with a very different result than was expected. Um, why do you think that happened? What, what, what was going on in that part of the country that ended up being so operative to the Republican Party's ability to win the presidency? Well, I, I do believe that Obamacare was not popular once it was implemented. I mean, it didn't work. Uh, premiums on the individual market skyrocketed. Uh, I think the advantage for Democrats in Obamacare is, in the end, Obamacare really impacted a pretty small percentage of the American population. I mean, it screwed up our healthcare market, was not helpful, didn't work. But uh, the people that bore the f- the full burden of Obamacare's uh, misdirected you know, market interventions were people on the individual market uh, because they were asked to bear the full cost of covering people with pre-existing conditions, which, by the way, was pretty much universally accepted. I mean, Democrats lied about Republicans not wanting to cover people with pre-existing conditions. I mean, I talked about my daughter. She has a pre-existing condition. I want to make sure that she has health care, access to it, or health insurance throughout her life. So, again, that was one of the many lies that Democrats say about their political opponents. But it just it caused those individual premiums to skyrocket, but government picked up the tab for most people. So, as as much as Obamacare has failed at its mission, people never talk about it. It's just sort of just forgotten in history. And it's just one of the many barnacles that we've attached to our healthcare system that weigh it down and, and make it unworkable. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about this <clears throat> because I don't I don't feel like I've heard elected Republicans talk about healthcare in like years. You know, it's kind of we've 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 just accepted that, oh, oh this is the this is the new you know, status quo. Well, we utterly blew it during the Trump administration. Yeah. You know, we, we all ran on repeal and replace, right? By the way, I, I always use the term, let's repair the damage done by Obamacare and transition to something that actually works. Uh, what would actually work would transition insurance into truly insurance, where it's covering catastrophic and transition into more consumerism, you know, th- through things like health savings accounts, where you you reintroduce consumerism into healthcare. It's the only thing that's going to work, you know, free market competition. Um, that is the transition we need to make. But, you know, all these politicians, you know, ran on repeal and replace, and they had no replace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly uh, McConnell couldn't manage a process in the Senate, uh, nor could Paul Ryan. I mean, the healthcare of the House passed was awful. I mean, it's awful. I'm, you know, it, it <laughs> in in many ways, it was it was it was a horrible solution. Um, they just didn't take a look at the reality. They didn't take a look at what Obamacare, what opportunities it offered, because Obamacare is high deductible plans. Okay, so utilize those, and underneath there, bring in health savings accounts. Uh, again, I'm not saying the transition is easy, but you know, I know how I would have gone about doing it. But you know, the original group, the McConnell appointed in the Senate to, you know, his working group on Obamacare excluded me, excluded, I think, uh, Senator Perdue. I mean, the, the the few of us that came from the private sector that knew something about it. I mean, I, I bought health care for 30 some years, bought health insurance for, you know, I knew a fair amount about 
what works, what doesn't work, how screwed up the market was, and what we need to fix it wasn't even included. You know, I forced my way into a process that he just ignored anyway. So again, I mean, what 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 I can't overemphasize is how utterly unprofessional Washington is. You know, there may be some professionalism in agencies, um, but when it comes to Congress, I mean, part part of my friend here, it's just half. Uh, you don't have organized discussions the, the way you would in the private sector. Mm-hmm. You know, w- one of the things I, one of the points I made last December when we were arguing over the, the omnibus, if you remember that, I asked my Republican colleagues, anybody know how much we spent last year in total? I just got pretty much blank stares. I, I, About $2 trillion. I, 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 yeah. ga- I gave them, but now I'm going to embarrass you. I, I gave them absolute or, or absolution right away because I wouldn't expect, you know, because we never talk about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the answer was $6.2 trillion. I asked, I went out later on and asked the press the same thing. I got a similar answer. You know, it's uh, like it's over a trillion. No, that's discretionary spending. That's, you're talking about discretionary spending. I'm talking about in total. You know, right, right now we, we went from in 2019, $4.4 trillion in spending to now we've got a new baseline of 6.4 in four years. And, you know, my colleagues, I said, well, you know, there's nothing we can do about it because it's discretionary. It's, it's always the mandatory spending. Well, during those four years, somehow we allowed discretionary, or other mandatory spending, you know, other than Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, so other mandatory spending to increase over half a trillion dollars over four years. So again, if, if the problem is mandatory, again, it's really hard to address Social Security, Medicare, okay, at a minimum, don't keep adding other kind of spending to mandatory that's just out of control. We never look at it because it's mandatory. I mean, that is why the federal government is out of control. And by the way, you throw interest into mandatory spending as well. And now that's up to last year, $650 billion on a path to over a trillion on a path to exceed what we spend on Social Security. But the point I was making is that here we are, you know, basically the board of directors of the largest financial entity in the world. Okay. There's, there's nothing larger than the U.S. government. And the board of directors doesn't even know what that financial entity spends annually. Now, they, they're starting to know because I made the point last last December. So more of my colleagues know we're, we're starting to focus on that. And that's the first step in solving this problem is look at the entire budget and try and start doing something about it. But again, you, most most people say, no, let's wall off. You know, we're not going to look at we're not going to touch that. OK, well, then <laughs> we, we are going to have a debt crisis at some point in time. So. It's fascinating the way that you envision what the Senate is, board of directors of the largest financial entity in the world. I, You don't hear people talking that way about it. I think it's a very interesting way to put it because it it places an awesomeness on the responsibility of what, what being U.S. Senator is. Let, let me use just one, one more point in that. You know, right now, you know, we're arguing Ukraine funding versus you know, securing the border. So you know, Leader McConnell has appointed... You know, didn't ask my opinion. I was chairman of Homeland Security for six years. You know, hey, you want to help negotiate border security? No, he selected his team. And I keep making the point, okay, well, does the negotiating team know what the conference position is on securing the border? Or have we vested all of our authority in people that I didn't select to negotiate for us? And again, I think they're, they're fine people and you know, knowledgeable about the border and all that. But, but you know, our position is quite muddled in the Republican conference in terms of what we would require for border security in exchange for Ukraine funding. I mean, I, I, again, I'm, I'm there pushing for what I want. I couldn't tell you what the conference position is. I mean, that's how 
pardon my French, half the the discussion and the leadership is. is but that, I'm, but that I'm that sorry, I interrupted you. No, but is that a bug or a feature, right? Is the, is the process designed to actually involve the collaboration of all, you know, 50-something Republican senators? No, I mean, that's, that, that's exactly the way Leader McConnell wants it. He says, you know, it's not a dictatorship. No, it really is. Mm-hmm. It's, it's his way, and he just maneuvers to get his way. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what we have seen time and time again, where the leader leads a process where you get all 51 Democrats and just enough Republicans to make sure the Democrats get their priority. I mean, that's got to end. I mean, I point that out to my colleagues all the time that we can't let that happen. You know, they say, oh, we're not going to let it happen this time. Then, you know, it happens again. So we need to stop that process. Uh, We need a different governing model for the Republican conference, which is I was one of the leaders of the effort to, uh, and I appreciate that Rick Scott was willing to uh, run as leader, you know, knowing pretty full well that he wasn't going to win because he hadn't raised the money that McConnell had raised to help elect people. so it was a problem. So that was the moment of sort of first blood drawn. I mean, I, I remember when when uh, Senator Scott threw his his hat into the ring. Uh, it was an important first salvo. Uh, you know, what's the next one going to be? Uh, you know, how how uh, are the good guys uh, in the Senate going to to force a change to this process in the coming years? I mean, you know, we spent the last year, the, the House is going through its growing pains trying to find a way to approach a more transparent, legible process where members actually get to participate. Uh, what's your dream for how we do that in the Senate? Well, we, we are making changes in the Senate right now. I mean, for example, Leader McConnell was was all for continuing resolution that included $6 billion for Ukraine funding. I mean, he, you know, he was making that pitch the day we actually voted down that continue resolution mm-hmm. because in the conference at lunch, you know, those of us who were opposed to that prevailed. And in the end, I think uh, you know, he even voted to deny cloture on that bill that he was pushing. So, you know, I'm doing everything I can to force a different governing model, a more collaborative model uh, on the conference. Why do you think D.C. is so, to use your term, unprofessional? Why do you think there's this massive lack of seriousness? Because there are so very few members, staff, bureaucrats serving the executive branch that have any experience in, which means little knowledge of, and maybe even more importantly, very little sympathy for the private sector. They look at, they look at the, the easy money made by these big tech billionaires. Well, you know, business is easy. <laughs> you know, business is our cash cow. I mean, biz- business is, is, you know, these are the entities that price gouge. And so, you know, we've, we're, we're the angels here. We're, we're the really smart people to make sure that these evil business people don't price gouge our voters. Uh, we're we're going to be the ones that com- command these economies. And they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. I think the other thing is uh, because they've never been the private sector, they've never even been part of a functioning organization. Now, I think the, the bureaucrats, you've got the agencies that they're probably, you know, they're functioning organizations, okay? But Congress, I mean, I, I, I've never seen anything this dysfunctional that are dealing with such important issues. I mean, this is grotesquely dysfunctional. That's why, you know, the, yeah, I wasn't going to run for a third term. I mean, I was had enough of it. <laughs> but, you know, in the end, I couldn't turn my back on this country and nobody else was advocating for the vaccine injured. So I did decide to run for another term. The day after I won the election, I wrote a column that Wall Street Journal uh, ran it. I said, this is the way to restore some function, hopefully some fiscal discipline 
to Congress. And so I just laid out. So we've got a debt ceiling debate coming up. So let's get something for it. You know, I, I propose Preventing Government Shutdown Act, uh, Full Faith and Credit, uh, the No Default Act, the RAINS Act, and also reduce the size of the Federal Government through Attrition Act. Don't have to fire anybody, just quit hiring them. Okay. So those are four structural reforms that I would have, if I were in charge, I would have pushed to attach to the debt ceiling and then pass a budget and have that budget guide and appropriation process. You know, but you got to start, you know, February, March, April, and then have those appropriation bills. That didn't happen. You know, McCarthy didn't make sure the House passed them. You know, McConnell certainly wasn't pushing, you know, pushing Schumer to do it in the, in the Senate. So here we, here we are. Uh, took up our first appropriation bill in September. The, the fiscal year ends September 30th. Uh, <laughs> we're going to go home for Christmas. We're still operating continuing resolutions. My guess is we'll have a year-long continuing resolution because I don't see you know, the, the Senate. We, again, we passed one minibus, and we haven't brought anything else up. So again, Schumer and McConnell, they, they've got this well-honed process for more generic kids' future. And it's about omnibuses. It's about, you know, not a real functioning process where there's more collaboration. It's just that they'll write the omnibus spending bill, drop it on our desk, you know, multi-thousand page bills, and then expect us to vote for it because we want to go home for Christmas. Well, you know, Speaker Johnson broke that up by doing a continuing resolution in in January and February. So we're going to go home, home for Christmas. There's no, really no drama this year, which I appreciate, <laughs> but I don't, I don't appreciate the cont- continuing dysfunction. It's interesting. I've never been in a city where uh, its inhabitants think so highly of themselves while being so mediocre, to your point. Um, it's a very, very dysfunctional town. How do you think about um, staffing uh, in general, expertise, et cetera, not just um, in your in your own you know, Senate office, but in, in Congress, in the administration? What, what needs to change about staffing in this town? Well, first of all, there are a lot of good people here in town. Okay, I mean, again, I don't want to denigrate, you know, you know, they're they're good people. They're smart people. They're hardworking people. That's you know members of Congress. That's staff. And it's, it's just that they don't have the experience. You know, you know staff members are coming right out of college and you know poli sci or or comms or whatever. And again, smart bright people. I like working with them. I I give them assignments. I you know they do good research for me. That kind of stuff. But again, it's not like you've got somebody with decades of experience in the private sector that really understands what an onerous tax system does to just business decision making. And they, again, they just, they don't have experience. So that's the main problem is you just don't have, as I said, the experience, knowledge, or sympathy for the private sector. And that's a killer. I don't, I don't care how smart, how hardworking, how well-intentioned you are, you need experience. And we just don't have it here in Washington, D.C. Do you think we have a compensation problem in Washington? No, we have a government's way too big problem. I mean, that's the root cause. I mean, our founders never envisioned a federal government this large. I mean, it wasn't much more than 100 years ago when the federal government was 2% of our economy. And state and local governments were about 5%. That, that's pretty much the vision of the founding fathers. You know, government close to the government in the sovereign states. You know, local and, and state government that's closer to the government, more efficient, more effective, more accountable. We've turned that, cons- that constitutional premise on its head. And now the federal government is about 25% of our GDP, State and local governments, I think somewhere around 15, for, for now for total take governments, again, this is, these are old, you know, somewhere around 40%. That's massive. You know, I think one of my first Tea Party speeches I gave is, you know, I, I mentioned that for a brief moment in time under Ronald Reagan, we were 72% free because the federal tax was <laughs> the only, it was 28%. And it's a yeah. direct proportion. 
I mean, freedom is a, is directly proportional to how much the government can take from you. And and back then, the government could take twenty eight percent and no more. But when government at all levels are taking forty percent, I don't know. Are, are you even feeling sixty percent free? People ought to think about that. So you mentioned that part of the reason you chose to ran again, and and I've I've, I've heard from some of your colleagues about this as well, is how badly across American life, we bungled the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, tell me what it was like as 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 that was beginning uh, and what immediately began to concern you about our response and 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 why that that has really motivated your your service. So the best way to explain is kind of, you know, I was chairman of Homeland Security. Now, I was holding hearings that the health committee should have been doing, but they, they weren't. So early February, I mean, this was right after, you know, just now as the pandemic, I held a hearing with Scott Gottlieb, other former CDC officials, that type of thing. And the, the main takeaway about there is we don't produce the precursor chemicals or the active pharmaceutical ingredients for drugs. We just don't do it. We've done nothing to address that in the intervening three years. You pass a one point whatever trillion dollar infrastructure bill, you think we did anything to bring some chemical refineries so we can do precursor chemicals? No, we haven't done anything. So again, we... Recognize the problem and we ignore it okay? <laughs> until it blows up on our face. So, so again, th- that's the first thing. Then very early on, um, you had Johnny Anitas analyze the Princess Cruise. You know, that was, that was a perfect research test right there, right? And he found out that, yeah, this is a deadly disease if you're elderly, as the flu can be, or certain comorbidities. But if you're young and healthy, you know, it's going to be like the flu. And we knew that early on. So I actually wrote a column for the because I was the guy who spotted off saying, listen, we tragically lose tens of thousands of people on the highway every year, but we don't shut down the highways. We can't. I did that in March and then Fauci, you know, ripped me from the podium. So that's <laughs> way out there. No, it was a good analogy. So USA Today asked me to write a column on keeping the economy open, which I did. They give you three hundred words. They, you don't get to see their counter argument about <laughs> you know closing it down. They, they get about eight hundred words. I got three hundred so I just got savage for that. That was that ran March thirtieth of twenty twenty. I'm very proud of that column. And then I followed that up with a hearing with Johnny Unitas, but also with a, a fellow that I'd never heard of, Pierre Corey. He was associated with the University of Wisconsin, and he was proposing treatment using corticosteroids. So I not only brought in Johnny Unitas and some, some other experts to just try and calm people down. This, this isn't SARS. It's not MERS. It's not Ebola. This is, it could be a really bad flu, okay? So it's, it's not worth freaking out about. I mean, take take precautions. Okay. We ought to be exploring early treatment. We ought to be, you know, letting doctors be doctors and practice medicine and use this marvel of the internet to communicate with each other. That was all shut down. But this was May where Pierre Corey came out and talked about his success using corticosteroids. He was vilified for about eight weeks until then there was a study out of the UK that said dexamethasone, which actually works. Now they underdosed it for the rest of the pandemic. Um, I then brought it, I then got connected to, you know, a large, a growing group of uh, global uh, doctors and, and medical researchers. Uh, uh, Peter McCulloch, I brought him in with Harvey Risch and George Freed. They're successfully treating people with the, the hydroxychloroquine and Z-Pak and, and zinc. And then the following week or the following month, they brought in Pierre Corey again, talking about ivermectin. So that, that was November, December of the, the pandemic. I'm still going, you know, why aren't we pursuing early treatment? It was baffling to me. You know, and the evidence, you know, was very strong, you know, plus just anecdotally, you know, because I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm getting people all the time. I could connect them to doctors. I'm hearing 
stories of just tremendous turnaround. People can't breathe and they get ivermectin with you take with a fatty food and you know, within hours I, I can breathe again. I mean, I'm I'm hearing this repeatedly. So I'm convinced, okay, and I think the studies are out there, but but all that was sabotaged by the FDA. Um by social media, you know, by the trusted news network, all that kind of stuff. Why? So, I mean, again, when, when things don't make sense to me, I start getting pretty suspicious. And of course, I think we know now this was all about pushing a vaccine. You, you go back to October 2019, a couple weeks before the event 201, and you've got Rick Bright, who wrote the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine to sabotage it because he only, only used it as a trial in the hospital, which is too late. Mm-hmm. But he's with Anthony Fauci at the Milken Institute <clears throat> saying, you know, we just have never been able to achieve a universal vaccination program and we need one. It'll probably take a pandemic. Well, I got it. <laughs> they got one. Okay. Yeah. And then you look at 201, which the primary takeaway about there is you got Averill uh, Haynes, you know, now our director of national intelligence. She's primarily focused on misinformation, what we can do to basically censor Americans. You know, yeah. how, how can we censor doctors? You know, how can we vilify doctors that aren't towing the company line here? So, you know, the tragedy is, I don't know how many hundreds of thousand people lost their lives not being adequately treated. You know, we push something like remdesivir, which is highly profitable for the drug companies and for people that are associated with it. I mean, the, the conflicts <laughs> of interest of that approval are unbelievable, but that stays under the radar. You know, we pushed the vaccines. We completely ignored the safety signals that were screaming at us. I just started publishing the VAERS data, comparing the the VAERS. That's the the taboo word. You can't say that around town. (laughs) The the VAERS, which is the FDA advert, okay, on drugs. So I I would compare that with ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, Tylenol, flu vaccine. And and it was just stark. You know, I started asking, I, you know, I had a meeting with uh, Francis Collins, a b- bunch of other Republican senators. They're just all patting the belt themselves in the back. Because, hey, we got those tests out there. <laughs> you know, I mean, what good's a test when you don't do anything with it? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I'm, I'm the one that says, well, you know, Dr. Collins, are, are you looking at what VAERS is telling you? I mean, that back then we had a, about a few thousand deaths on VAERS, you know, dramatic increase over what you see with flu vaccines. And 40% of those deaths at that time were occurring on day zero, one or two. And he said, well, Senator, you know, we've looked at these saying we've, we've got six deaths associated with the J&J vaccine on clotting, you know, of women of child age bearing years, you know, or child bearing age. Um, but other than that, he said, you know, Senator, people die. That's how cavalier. So we're up to over 36,000 deaths now worldwide on, on VAERS. Uh, it's about 24% now because now we're giving them to young people. They're healthier. They can withstand the, the assault on the gene therapy. And uh, 24% of those are occurring on either the day of vaccination or within two days. Now, again, that's a safety signal screaming at you. I always get pushback. Well, yeah, but we gave billions of doses. Okay, let's take a look at it on a per-dose basis, okay? So I finally did that calculation. It's hard to get the number of doses of flu vaccine. You've got a number of distributed. So I'm assuming 70% of distributed vac- flu vaccines over a 10-year period were actually injected. Okay, that's my assumption. The... Number of deaths per million doses of the COVID vaccine is 25.5. The number of deaths per million doses of flu vaccine over 10 years, assuming 70% injection based on distribution is 0.46. That's a 55-fold increase of deaths per million doses and nothing to see there. I've written letters to the FDA on hot lots. Obvious. There's one lot that has over, this was over two years ago probably. There was, there was one lot that had over 5,000 
uh, serious adverse events associated with it, okay? Compared to the highest flu lot, over 26, 27, 28 years, it was 137. There are hundreds of lots of, of uh, the COVID vaccine that has over 500 adverse events associated. It's, it's, it's stark. So it takes me a year to get a response from the FDA, and the response is, we don't see any difference. We don't see any lot variation. Again, I come from manufacturing. Yeah. You know, that is a process out of control. When when you've got, I think, I think it's uh, 80% of all adverse events are occurring in like 5% of the lots. And ser- I mean, I can't remember the exact, it's, it's in my letter. But it's the, the adverse events are, and that's the good news, quite honestly. If you did the, get, the, did get the vax, it does seem there, like there were some bad lots or hot lots that cause most of the serious adverse events and deaths. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that's true because I know a lot of people I love that also got vaccinated. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your rationale behind this um, and and all these studies and, and, and all this work that you've put into studying these adverse effects. And the YouTube video of this will probably be taken down. They <laughs> called you a science denier, right? And, you, and, and you've been um, so focused on like the actual data and they're the science deniers. It's 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 just crazy. To well, me. I mean, right right now, if if you haven't read uh, RFK Jr.'s new book, it just came yeah. out. I, I got an yeah, advanced got copy. It. Read it. You know, Rand Paul has a book, kind of laying this out. I mean, we we are getting more and more evidence. You, know, you got the House Committee that has got you know some Slack messages and. You know, but to me, it's been so obvious. I mean, the, the minute those Fauci emails were foiled, even the heavily redacted state, it's just obvious. These guys knew how incriminating their funding of the Wuhan lab through EcoHealth Alliance was. And, you know, they're, they've been covering up ever since. I mean, it's, it's interesting of all the government agencies that would know what happened. I mean, the government agencies that know the most is the CIA. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, they, they've, through USAID, they've been funding, you know, bioweapon research. You know, they, they, that's what it is. I mean, they're saying it's, well, it's, you know, in case some crazy person were to use CRISPR technology and splice genes and create a chimeric virus. I mean, we got to be prepared for it. So we got to know how to create a vaccine, right? That's yeah. the rationale. Well, so then they go out and they create dangerous chimeric viruses that produce a vaccine and, or produce a pandemic, and they know it. And so the CIA is well aware of this. They remain the agency that's still clinging to, oh, this sprung from nature. <laughs> and now we found out good good work oversight by the house that uh, i think six of the seven people tasked in the cia for figuring out you know is this you know what is the origin of covid were bribed to change their opinion from spraying <laughs> from the lab and it's, so again there is so much corruption here's a pretty good figure too obviously i knew that anthony fauci had funded eco health alliance right that's to, to the tune of about 14 15 million dollars over a number of years right <laughs> The Defense Department funded EcoHealth Alliance to the tune of about $42 million. And USAID, which Bobby Kennedy says is a CIA cutout, which I believe, (laughs) to the tune of 50-some million dollars. So Fauci's funding was less than the Defense Department and USAID slash CIA. So that tells you something. Again, that, that was information I didn't know until I read Bobby Kennedy's book. Okay. Yeah. So again, more and more information is coming out. This just uh, it's kind of like the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if you read books on that right now, there's no way you can't come to the conclusion that if not directly responsible, certainly involved. I mean, this, yeah. this, you know, it was not a lone gunman. There is no way it was a lone gunman. And then you find out 
you know, who ran the Warren Commission? Well, that would be Alan Dulles. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the fired head of the CIA who hated Kennedy. This, like, this is the last topic I expected to get to. Uh, well, again, so... <laughs> it's awesome, though. I love it. Well, again, so, yeah, I didn't come here to be an investigator. Yeah. But I became chairman of Homeland Security, and then March 2015, as soon as I became chairman, the Hillary Clinton email scandal broke. And not only am I chairman of the Senate Oversight Committee, that's what government affairs is, Federal records is under my jurisdiction. <laughs> you had to look at that, and it's the same cast characters that exonerated her. That the doctor that edited James Comey's exoneration email turned into Crossfire Herc. I mean, it's just it's just one great continuum to you know the FBI with their uh, oh god was what they call the task force that uh, is basically a catch and kill operation. They find out you know anything derogatory about uh, Hunter Biden, and they go in there they kill that information, and that's what they do with Chuck Grassley and I. In August 2020, during the midst of our investigation, we had an unsolicited briefing by the FBI that said, you know, you guys talk this Russian disinformation. Nah. <laughs> now, this is after six months of us being accused of soliciting, disseminating Russian disinformation falsely by Democrats and by the media. It's like, okay, do, do you have, like, new intelligence here? I mean, you got something? Oh, can't share that with you. That's when I say, okay, who told you to brief me? To this day, I still don't know. Wow. I have no idea. They, they won't. Well, interagency. Okay, there are people in the, who directed this briefing. They won't tell us. Yeah. So again, I, I've been subject to their their misdirection operations as well. So last question on the on the vaccine stuff in particular. This is this we're kind of wandering here, aren't we? Yeah, it's we're it's awesome. Uh, but, but, uh, very but, much. Let, let me tie that up. Okay. okay. So. For your listeners, if you want to go down the path I've gone, yeah. okay, so that's where I started my investigations, and you know I've been involved in all these investigations ever since, right? And I'll continue. Uh, but read JFK and the Unspeakable, okay? That's again, it's written by a real lefty, so you kind of got to get through that. But there's solid information that are, is eye-opening. Read The Devil's Chessboard. That's about Alan Dulles' CIA. Uh, just throw in there, the creature from Jekyll Island is pretty good <laughs> about the cartel that is our Federal Reserve. Okay, th those are just some good books. If you want vaccines, Dissolving Illusions, Turtles All the Way Down. Uh, read Bobby Kennedy's The Real Anthony Fauci. Now read his new The Wuhan Cover-Up. Read Rand Paul's book. Yeah. About the I mean, th th there's good, solid information, and your eyes will be open, and that's the whole point. We need more Americans' eyes open to what government is doing to us and how thoroughly corrupt... And pervasive the deep state is so on on vaccines um and i think this this is really eye-opening is what what do you think the motivation was behind i mean it was basically forced vaccination right like you were ostracized if it was not something that you got what's what's the motivation there is it the money is it the control a little bit of both so you really need to depose bill gates and figure out <laughs> everything the bill and melinda gates foundation has funded how they've taken over through their funding control over these global institutions. Um, you know, th th these, these guys actually talk about these things openly, mm -hmm. you know, what they want to do, you know, mass vaccination campaigns. I mean, the, the level of control that would provide people. So again, I, I don't have all the explanations here. I just see all the incredibly troubling things that are occurring in our society that are taking away our freedom. I mean, look, look at how easily Americans rolled over to shutdowns, to vaccine passports. You know, are they going to do the same thing to digital currencies? I mean, we are losing control of our lives. We're losing our freedom. 
And there, there's a game plan out there. And again, I, I'm not sure there's, you know, there's some massive conspiracy, but there, there's a group of very elite people that control, that exercise far too much control over lives. And, you know, I would point to people like Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, the Klaus Schwab's of the World Economic Forum. You know, what are they trying to do with these, uh, the, these amendments to the, the World Health Organization pandemic response, you know, to take away sovereignty? I mean, these things that we need to take a look at, the problem is, you know, I had an amendment to deem any agreement with the WHO a treaty. So it'd have to come before the Senate. We can debate it. And we can decide whether we want to turn our sovereignty over to a corrupt you know, world organization like that. Every Republican voted for that amendment, except for the sponsor of the bill that I was amending. He didn't want a poison pill. <laughs> and then every Democrat voted against it. I mean, that, that's, that's concerning that, that U.S. sovereignty is a partisan issue. You know, border security is a partisan issue. Um, unfortunately, merging our kids' future is a bipartisan compromise. <laughs> yeah, you know, the Uniparty <laughs> supports that pretty well. So I know this is all scatterbrained health. No, no, it, but, but it's but it's important because it, it goes to the 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 heterodoxy that you're providing in D.C., which which we need so much more of. Um, you know, you laid out this chronology of of um, you know the, the moments where where government really uh, you know acted against the public interest in the late 20th century going all the way through the COVID pandemic. I think one of the biggest things that makes those two eras different is the role uh, that corporate power has played in in these 21st century efforts, specifically during COVID. So much of the COVID regime was potentiated, secured by big tech or um, uh, by, by other forces. H how are you thinking about the corporate power element of all this? Well, I, th I really think we had a far less biased media back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, and if anything, they were, you know, the, the media then was attacking conservatives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now now the media is, well, I mean, the, the you know, the protests were coming from the left against government stuff. Now that's all switched. You know, the left is totally on, on board with government. So you, you had a more inquisitive media uh, pushing back on a host of different issues, you know, more suspicious of government because government was controlled by you know, at that point, conservatives like Dixon, that type of thing. And, and so you that's you need a media that's unbiased, that's going to hold both sides accountable, that, that is inquisitive, that, that investigates things and, and roots out corruption. Now you've got a media that is by and large part and parcel of big government and, and the, the radical left. So I think that the real shift occurred, and I was talking about the masterstroke of the left, is they took over the, the university systems during the Vietnam War protests. And so now you have the radical left and they are radical. Okay. Take a look at the, the, the three uh, university presidents testified before Congress, um, but they're the radical left. So they control all the colleges, but in particular three impact our culture law. So they're cranking out a bunch of lawyers become activist judges. And, you know, I, th I would say exceed their constitutional authority far too often uh, rather than arbiters, rather than apply the law, they alter it. Uh, but then you take a look at colleges journalism. You know, we, we don't have journalists nowadays. We have some, you know, but by and large, you have advocates for the left coming out. And, you know, they, they invite me on, you know, whether it's CNN or Chuck Todd or whatever. It's not to interview me, to argue with me, you know, to, you know, gotcha questions, that type of thing. So it's, it's not it's not journalism that actually reveals things. It's journal, journalism that advocates. And then probably the, the most corrosive thing is we are. We are graduating indoctrinators. And so there's still good teachers, but I mean, when you take a look at the indoctrination that's incurring, you know, occurring 
K through 12. And then, of course, it's just icing on the cake when kids get to go to college. It's, it's awful. Mm-hmm. And so that's had a tremendous destructive impact on our culture, which is why now you have, you know, students uh, that are protesting in favor of Hamas who just brutally murdered in the most horrific ways. I mean, I can't even bring myself to look at that video. I, there are enough things keep me awake at night. I don't need to see that. I've, I've, I've read the description. That's horrible enough. Okay. And we've got American students basically protesting in support of that, not outraged by that slaughter. Um, so and to me, it's, it's, it, it really all began in terms of the downhill slide, our, our slouching toward Gomorrah, um, you know, our road to serfdom, uh, all started in the sixties in the universities and that's going to take a long time to reverse. Absolutely. Um, one of the other, uh, issues that you've been very active on, especially, um, in the oversight realm is, you know, you were paying attention to Ukraine, um, uh, you know, long before this, uh, Russia's invasion started. I would be curious to hear kind of your arc of, of how you understand that country, the American response, uh, in the war and, and what needs to happen next. Zelensky was just wandering around DC yesterday. I, f- I first went to Ukraine as part of a larger trip, uh, in 2011, we visited Georgia, Georgia, Shakasvili, and then, uh, went to Ukraine, then went up to the Baltic states. Um, it was interesting. And back then, it was all about corruption in the wheat markets and, you know, corruption in the media and that, that type of thing. I mean, corruption. I mean, there, it's, it's a former Soviet uh, satellite state, and corruption is just endemic in that s- system. So it's hard to rid those countries. You know, fast forward, then I became, I got in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I became chairman of the European Subcommittee. So I start making trips to Europe quite a bit. And I've, I've been to Ukraine probably six or so times. I was the only member of Congress who was at Zelensky's inauguration. Matt, I think he generally wanted to destroy corruption in Ukraine, uh, but he's a political neophyte. You know, the long knives were out immediately. I know when I met him at the inauguration, then two months later, I went back with Senator Murphy. I mean, he wanted to do a peace deal with Putin. He, he realized it'd be challenging because Putin had annexed Crimea and controlled Eastern Ukraine, but he's pretty realistic going, I mean, I'm not going to be able to root him out of there. Uh, A lot of Ukrainians, Russian speakers in Eastern Ukraine probably like to be allied with Russia. I mean, a lot of people in Crimea were. So it's like, I can't, I can't undo that as much as we'd like to. And as much as we want to say that that's just unacceptable, he wanted to do a peace deal with Putin. Now, I will tell you, it was not helpful the way Democrats utilized Ukraine in their impeachment. That was not helpful to Ukraine. If you support Ukraine, the impeachment was awful for Ukraine. I mean, it's just highlighted and you know polarized you know, American support for whatever. I don't think Putin ever would have re- uh, invaded Ukraine with Trump in office. He never would have done it had we not surrendered in Afghanistan and, and showed that weakness. He, he wouldn't have done it with an open border. You know, if we, we didn't have an open border and 40-year high inflation and war and fire, I mean... All these things that Biden has done has so weakened this country and emboldened our enemies. So that, that's when tyrants choose to act. So they did it. I think we could have, even late, we could have dissuaded him from doing that by just a very strong uh, declaration. We're not ever going to invite Ukraine and NATO. You know, we could have put some tripwire NATO forces in there. I mean, we should have done everything we could to deny him that invasion. But then then it happened. Uh, it, the courageous Ukrainian people. I see Zelensky too. I mean, he had a free pass out of there. He didn't take it, even though he had crack assassination squads after him. So you got to give him credit for that, right? And I think most Americans are highly sympathetic with the play of the Ukrainian people. I mean, they want to be free. I mean, we understand that. 
Uh, I actually voted for the first $40 billion support to try and signal to Putin, end this. Okay, you failed. Stop. Okay? This isn't good for anybody. This is just a lose, lose, lose situation. He was back on his heels, but again, I don't think Biden pressed as as fast as he could have, so we missed that opportunity. So now here we are in 22-month bloody stalemate. I mean, Ukraine cannot win this war. Let's put it this way. Russia won't lose the war. Yeah. I mean, losing the war is is existential to Putin. He has nuclear weapons. He will use them. You know, in order to win the war, Ukraine would have to start inflicting damage on on Russia. I mean, lobbing missiles into Moscow to get the Russian support for the war to to decrease. So that won't it cannot happen. So it's a bloody stalemate. This will end. The only way it ends in a in a negotiated settlement. Every day that goes by, more Ukrainians die, more Russian conscripts die, and I take no joy in that, and more Ukraine gets destroyed. So end it. Stop adding fuel to the flames. I mean, I don't, I don't like saying it. I'm not going to like the result. We're not going to like the result. But every day that goes by, the result gets worse and worse and worse. Recognize that reality. If, if there's a problem in Washington, D.C., is just the denial of reality. I'd say that's the main problem with, with liberalism. They, they deny the reality of human nature. Uh, but in this case, I mean, we we're just denying the reality of the situation, fighting a proxy war, and it's Ukrainians that are and Russian conscripts that are suffering. And and, and we glibly talk about, uh, well, no Americans are dying. Well, God, other people are. Mm-hmm. Does that offend you? I mean, I find it's it's depraved, it's offensive to have people claim, well, you know, the beauty of you know sixty billion dollars that's mainly going to go to jobs in America. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't think jobs in America are worth the destruction of a country and the slaughter of people. I'm just, it's, again, it's, it, it's sick the way this thing's going. Again, as, as sympathetic as I am, I think most Americans are to the play of the Ukrainian people, how evil Putin is, and he is a war criminal. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the, the war crimes committed, the atrocities, I mean, we're every bit as bad in Ukraine as what Hamas did to Israel, okay? So we're not going to like the result. We're not, we're not going to get justice on that. Mm-hmm. We're just going to get more slaughter as long as this thing goes back. So yeah, I've, I've got a different view on this. I'm not I'm not an absolutist. So, so what I proposed is, okay, Biden, if you want $60 billion for Ukraine, um, I would actually vote and promote that as long as that funding is contingent on and only flows as you meet the benchmarks of securing our border. Because that's a clear and present danger. I mean, our unsecured border is a clear and present danger to America. It's not just impacting New York. It's impacting small towns throughout America. They're inundated with migrants. Who, By the way, most of those migrants in a legal system, we'd welcome them. They want to come here. They want to work. But in a legal system, they also are forced to assimilate. In an illegal system, they're abused by their sex traffickers, human traffickers, drug traffickers. I mean, it's, it's... out of control system. So again, what I'm proposing, I think Republican red line on this ought to be is, okay, you want the funding, uh, we'll give you some up front, as long as you pass the, the bills, you know, remain in Mexico, safe third country, change the asylum standard to, you know, more likely than not, you have a valid asylum claim and more likely than not, you're telling us the truth. I mean, that's kind of our orthodoxy in terms of what we need to do for credible fear uh, improvement. And, and then on a monthly basis, over 12 months, secure the border. That's what it took Trump 12 months. Once he had to remain in Mexico in place, and those, it took him 12 months to go from peak to trot, from about 144,000 encounters to about 17,000. It's entirely possible. So you just kind of let $5 billion a month flow 
based on reducing the number. By the way, right now it's about 250,000 people a month, well over 6 million people. That's 31 states have populations less than 6 million. Wisconsin's right at the bubble. We're that 31st state, 5.9 million. That's the magnitude of the problem. And it's growing. 1.7 detected gotaways. 1.7 million detected gotaways. We have no idea. They call them known gotaways. I I don't like using that term because we have no idea who those people are and we have no idea where they are. Think there might be some sleeper cells in here? You think maybe we've got some Iranian sleeper cells that uh, could be activated if we more aggressively retaliate against what Iran militias are doing to us in in Syria and elsewhere? This this is and, and again. So and what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about. I mean, Democrats won't even sit down and negotiate in good faith on this. And you know, I love the Wall Street Journal. But I mean, their ed boards publishing things would be a win-win if we Ukraine funding and modest immigration reform. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, we actually have to secure the border. This isn't about immigration. This is about securing our border. They're like, cool, and, amnesty opportunity. No. And, 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 yeah, and, and, and ending a clear and present danger to this nation. And anybody that doesn't recognize this as a clear and present danger and just destructive to our society. Again, I, we're a nation of immigrants and I've been the border and so many of those people are just, I mean, your heart goes out to them and you want to help him truthfully. I mean, in, in a legal system, we should welcome him. We don't have enough workers in this country, but it's got to be controlled. Um, but th- this is going to be unbelievably corrosive and destructive to our country. What, what's already happened, and we continue to let it happen. That's why Republicans, we just have to dig our heels in. We've got to show leadership on this. I, I'm going to ask you to play a little bit of armchair psychologist. What What is it that leads to so many people in D.C., Republican and Democrat alike, to care so much more, it appears, personally about what's going on in Ukraine than what's going on at our southern border. Yeah, I, I think there is a bubble here. You know, <clears throat> I think most members do get out and they, they talk to people in the states and stuff. I, I don't know why they don't make the connection with what their constituents are actually telling them. You know, do, do they read the Washington Post too much? The New York, I mean, I, I, I don't quite get, but there is a bubble here. And you get back into town and we're not talking about the bigger issue. I mean, why aren't we talking about critical race theory? Why aren't we talking about why are we pushing transgenderism on our children? You know, again, the, the, the lie the left tells is, you know, the Republicans hate. You know, no, no, no. We have true compassion for anybody that has true gender dysphoria. What we're opposed to is our education system telling impressionable little boys and girls that you might not be a boy, mm-hmm. you know, and all of a sudden we have this explosion of people who are gender dysphoric. Mm-hmm. That's so... No, so there's so why aren't we addressed? Because when I go back to Wisconsin, that's certainly what conservatives are concerned about. They're concerned about the fact that this nation is circling the drain right now. They're concerned about the open border. They're concerned about that a dollar they they held the start of the Biden administration is only worth eighty five cents. They're concerned about the war on fossil fuel. They don't want EVs. If they did, they'd buy them. Mm-hmm. Okay, they they want to be able to take a trip and not have to plug in every hundred fifty miles. Okay. Again, it's, it's mainly a disconnection on the part of Democrats, I would say. But, you know, listen, I think Republicans, you know, many of them are also just divorced from the reality situation, what's happening in this country and really what Americans are really looking for. But you also have to understand how many Americans are poisoned and, you know, by the mainstream media, by by the leftist views and you know, how they're just not made, made aware of these things. I mean, the mainstream media has done a pretty good job of just keeping the whole border situation off the front page. I mean, can you imagine if that was a Republican in office? 
<laughs> just true. It's true, you know. <clears throat> so again, I, I I do largely blame the media for and, and our, the, the, those two, our education system and the media. That's that's the problem we have in our. They control the information, and so, control the information is powerful. Absolutely. So, Senator, you, you, we've talked about the the debt and fiscal situation. We've talked about um, uh, you know the, the the COVID response, and we talked about Ukraine. These are all issues that um, you know you you were ahead of the curve on. And so, I'm I'm gonna ask, you know, what's the thing that you're paying attention to right now that no one else is that everyone will be Johnny come lately on next year? You know, what's tw- 12 months from now? What What is the thing that people are going to finally be listening to you on? What 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 are the, 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 the hidden threats to the country that, that you're really paying attention to right well, now? Well, we really haven't talked about the, the debt deficit issue the way we should. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to raise its ugly head. Uh, I mean, the fact in 2002 is where we passed the $2 trillion a year Rubicon. You know, 2019, 17 years later, we 4.4. Now we're, you know, 6.4. And that's, I mean, a $2 trillion increase in just the baseline spending. Uh, you know, big chunk of that is just, you know, inflation. You've got the automatic COLAs to the entitlement programs. Um, it's not sustainable. Uh, you'll have the, and it is a fiction. It's just an accounting gimmick, the Social Security Trust Fund. It's a U.S. government hot bond held by U.S. government. It's, it's worthless piece of paper because, they turn it over to the U.S. government. The government just has to float another bond. And as we're trying to do that now, creditors are demanding a higher interest rate because they realize we're a credit risk. So th- this blows up in our face eventually. And it can collapse violently and very quickly. I, I can't predict it. You know, So we're a highly affluent society. I think we're going to have a real hard time coming to grips with what really happens in a true debt crisis. Um but I mean, just go down the road. I mean, we know the the fiction of the Social Security Trust Fund runs out, you know, 2033, 34, 35. Uh, at that point, I, I think most people expect that what trustees have to do is they have to reduce benefits to equal the revenue flow in. Right now, they think it's about 75%. The question on the table is, will we have the financial wherewithal to plus up the benefits to honor those promises? Um, that's a big question. I would... I would be highly doubtful that we'll have that financial wherewithal because we may have already hit a debt crisis. So, you know, most people in Washington, D.C. are just whistling past that graveyard. So, well, probably won't happen on my watch. You know, I, I think I'll retire this year. <laughs> um, so, so again, it's, it's just being ignored. And, you know, when, when I, for example, during my campaign, uh, you know, I talked about how, you know, we need everything on the budget. Now, I, I use the, you know, which means everything... Now, I hate to say the word, but I'll get in trouble again, would be in the discretionary part of the budget. That immediately gets twisted. Oh, he wants to put Social Security in the chopping block. He yeah. wants to make it, you know, off the cliff. Off the cliff. No, like. <laughs> what, what, what I'm saying, I mean, that's just the budgetary terms here. Mandatory spending is not even looked at. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's just automatic. Yeah. You can't do that. You know, no, no family does that. Um, I mean, there's certain things like mortgage payments kind of in, in your, in your family budget there, you know, mortgage payments kind of mandatory spending. Okay. You got, you got to do that if you want to keep your house, but everything else pretty much discretionary. Uh, we have way too many things that are mandatory and we've got to start looking at this budget as a whole. We've got to be looking at the deficit. Uh, you know, last year we had about a, two years ago, it was about a trillion dollars. Now it was listed as 1.3 because there's 333 billion that, uh, was counted as spending, from student loan forgiveness, which was ruled unconstitutional, so we got it back. So the the two year ago deficit was it was one point three trillion dollars, so three hundred thirty three billion dollars higher than it actually was. So it was actually a trillion. 
This year's is reported as 1.7, but it's really two. But I mean, if you really I mean, just ignore the whole issue of student loans. So we went from a $1 trillion deficit two years ago to a trillion dollars to two trillion this year. And there's no end in sight. I mean, this is clearly unsustainable. But again, because it just hasn't, the calamity hasn't occurred, inflation eased. Um, I, no, we're, we're, that's, that's what ought to keep people awake at night. I mean, a debt crisis is going to be ugly. Do you think that uh, when people go to the polls in 2024, the economy is going to basically look the way it does now, or is there going to be a crisis that is informing their choice? You know, the, the, what's, what's such a disconnect? We haven't had a recession, uh, mainly because we don't have enough workers. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, that's the big problem in Wisconsin is the people who want to hire can't. Now, there's a host of reasons for that, but, you know, people haven't come to grips with that. I mean, the, 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 the political rhetoric is, you know, we need jobs. We got all kinds of jobs. We need workers. Okay. And there's two ways to grow your economy. There's two ingredients, financial capital for productivity gains. You know, you got to have the machinery and you have to have workers. We don't have enough workers to grow our economy and we need to grow our economy at least at 3%, at least to have any chance of escaping a debt crisis. So the, the economic pain people are feeling is really that the hangover of, of, for the inflation. Again, that's, that's a permanent damage. It's, 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 it's not the percentage and, oh, it's up, up high and now it's down low, so now everything's good. No. Because it was high, the damage has been done. Yeah, your dollar is now worth eighty-five cents. You know, Social Security went from one point two trillion to one point three. Interest so, rates from three hundred. Coca-Cola is not going back to ninety-nine cents. No, it's just not going to happen. It's permanent. I mean, yeah. you know, my my uh, my meal deal at McDonald's used to be five bucks. You know, <laughs> it's always twelve. <laughs> and I always get a sh vanilla shakes so that kind of boost. <laughs> That's just my extravagance. What's 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 your McDonald's order, Senator? Either the chicken sandwich or the. Uh, the quarter pounder, no cheese, no pickles, no onions. Like you're just, not a, just, just ketchup. You're not a filet fish guy? No. I don't think I've ever had one of these. I, I love fish. I'm a walleye fisherman, but that's fresh caught and then eaten. Yeah. You know, I, I, obviously, if Chick-fil-A is open, it always seems like I want to go to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday. Yeah. I go, yeah. I can't. <laughs> I do this all the time, like driving back from church. We we drive by one on the way home. I'm like, oh, we can stop at Chick-fil-A on the way home. And my wife's like looking at me from the passenger seat like, Really? <laughs> you're not thinking ahead. Senator, where can people keep up with with everything that you're saying? You're you're the most censored man on uh, censored senator on social media, I believe. So it's harder. But uh, where can they keep up with everything? Uh, well, my Senate website is just yeah. ronjohnson.senate.gov. I mean, Twitter, I'm on it. I mean, go find me. Just type in Ron Johnson or Senate Ron Johnson. I've, I, I don't keep those handles in my brain yeah. have, you ever, have you ever thought about creating you know uh, uh an account just for you like senator mike lee did <laughs> or you could say even more what you really think <laughs> well i think i'm saying quite a bit yeah now what i think right yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I always have yeah. um this i'm sure this podcast get me in trouble depends on what you clip and and gets uh blown out of proportion here yeah. but uh no i mean listen the public needs to know the truth they, yeah. they need to have people give an honest evaluation now am i right on everything um as, as much as people call me a conspiracy theorist, I mean, <laughs> those things I've been talking about, I, I, you know, th there's not one thing, quite honestly, when it comes to COVID that I've been proven wrong on, including, including, uh, you know, the whole issue of gargling. 
which was really grotesque. I mean, I, I'm on a telephone town hall. This is Omicron. People are taking it not as seriously as they should. I'm telling them to take it seriously, but there's things you can do, whether you get vaccinated or not. I mean, vitamin C, you know, vitamin D, uh, gargle. And that got turned into Senator Johnson. I mean, literally, the, the trolls are on there. All of a sudden, my comm shop gets contacted. Why is he saying that Listerine will replace the vaccine? <laughs> of course, I didn't say that was a week long story of, of ridicule, including go, yeah. go, they went up to New Hampshire. Now, thank you, Governor Sununu. You know, what, what, what do you say about this wacky Republican senator says that uh, Listerine will re- replace the vaccine? And Sunu, Sunu's quote was, when crazy knocks on your door, slam the door in the face. Okay. Thanks, Governor. Th- thanks, <laughs> thanks for giving me the benefit of the doubt. So anyway, um, long, a long sanatorial answer to your question of where my website is. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the podcast, Senator. We thanks for having it. me. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We certainly enjoyed having Senator Johnson on. Again, thank you to his fantastic staff who really led in making this happen. Uh, they w- they wanted to see him on the show and we were more than happy to oblige. Um, thank you guys as always for listening. Um, we are going to be taking a little bit of a break before season four. Um, lots to do here at American Moment as we enter the new year. It's going to be a very, very exciting year for us and a ton of new initiatives to come. I mean, between national concerns conservatism conference or year-long programming, all this crazy stuff we're doing. We're certainly keeping busy, but uh, look, there's a giant backlog of this show for you guys to uh, dig into over uh, the Christmas season. Um, So be sure to go back and and listen to them. Almost all of them are taped in a way such that they are evergreen. So um, thank you uh, as always, guys. I mean, Nick, thank you for uh, taking over the show whenever I'm out of town trying to raise money to keep the lights on around here. It's always very helpful. Do you have any parting thoughts for our guests uh, before the end of the season? Don't do anything that I wouldn't do. (laughs) And we're saying Merry Christmas again. So true. We only say Merry Christmas here at American Moment. And then, oh, uh, at some point um, when the delightful day of Kwanzaa arrives, be sure to go to my Twitter. (laughs) I have all year. (laughs) Kwanzaa is my favorite holiday. So, Um, you know, definitely real. (laughs) Definitely not a fake holiday. (laughs) Um, Thank you guys as always for listening. uh, And we will see you guys next season. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.